Let's jump back to verse 1. Start right at the beginning of the chapter just for a moment here. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Skip down to verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Skip down to verse 8. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. How many times... Oh, wait a minute. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Let's make sure we're clear about that. How many times in the Gospels... Does it tell us Jesus healed on the Sabbath? I'm not talking about how many times He healed on the Sabbath. It may be many more than than what are recorded in the pages of Scripture here. But as far as the Gospels are concerned, and I find this fascinating, Jesus healed on the Sabbath six times. Why is that interesting? Well, because six is the number of what in the Bible? It's the number of man. And the Bible tells us the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So along comes Jesus, and he's sure that his word has it recorded precisely just six times, not seven, not five, not nine, six times, as if making the point across 2,000 years to us that the Sabbath, the rest of God, was for man. He healed because Jesus came to give man rest, to give peace. And six is the number of a man. It's remarkable to me. Charles Spurgeon wrote, As God rested on the Sabbath and hallowed it, so as God, it was rest for Jesus to heal, and thus He hallowed the day. He came bringing rest. He came bringing that peace. And for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, there was nothing more holy, more hallowing that He could do than to heal people. And then to give them rest. But, as Jesus made His way on that Shabbat, through what John described as a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, you have to ask the question, why did He stop at one? I told you Sunday, I would tell you tonight. Why did He stop at one? And other times in the Gospels, he healed, and I'm talking in mass. Not just one, not just a handful, but the multitudes. Matthew 12:15 says, many followed him, and he healed them all. And if you go further than that, Matthew 15, verse 30, large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, blind, crippled, mute, and many others, and they laid down at his feet, and he healed them, So the crowd marveled as they saw mute speaking, crippled, restored, lame walking, blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Matthew 15.32 tells us that went on for three straight days. Non-stop healing. Everyone who came to Him, He just healed from one to the next, placing His hands on their eyes, pointing to the one who was bleeding, pointing to the one who was lame, calling out to the one who who was deaf. Opening the mouth of the one who is mute. Over and over and over. Person after person after person. And then we come to Bethesda. To that upper pool. And Jesus walks through the multitude and heals one man. Just one that day. At least as far as we know. 
Why? Let me give you a couple of things that I've been thinking about. And a couple of things to jot down. This is actually, I realize this is like a mini sermon before we even get to the study tonight. So you get a bonus for being here. God bless you. (laughs) A couple of reasons why I think Jesus only healed the one. And why sometimes He would bypass the others to heal the one. Number one. We need to understand that sanctification is personal. That is, your healing will not look like mine. Your illness won't be mine. Your pain in life will not be my pain in life. Your struggles will not be my struggles. Oh, we may have similar things that we face. We have, may have similar difficulties and challenges. We may be able to commiserate, you know, at times. But the reality is, my life is completely different than yours, and God knows that. And so He sanctifies uniquely one person to the next. As any parent can affirm, you cannot treat your children equally. Fairly, absolutely. You want to try to be fair to your children, but not equal. There's no way you can be equal. I'm not going to get political here. I promise. I'm just not. I'm not even going to go there. We'll keep it in the family with parents. You can't treat every child exactly the same because every child is different. That's why the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? My brother was disciplined differently than I was. My children, each one, every one of the six, have all experienced and gone through different types of discipline. Man, it keeps a parent on his toes. But our sanctification is personal. God knows what you need, and God knows what I need, and I believe God had other intentions for everybody else around the pool at Bethesda. It wasn't that Jesus just bypassed them and overlooked them, it's that that day, healing needed to come to that man. How do we know but that people around that pool who were sick and ailing and and struggling, deaf and blind, Mute? How do we know but that those same people weren't being saved to be healed by Peter or John or one of the apostles as the church began to emerge and explode? How do we know but that some around that pool needed not to be physically healed? Oh, see, in our brilliance and our wisdom, we would say, heal them all. Well, maybe some shouldn't be. Maybe there's a greater purpose. Maybe not only is sanctification personal, but suffering is part of the process. Suffering is part of the process. James wrote, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When I hurt, I'm in process. When I suffer, God is doing something. And yeah, it may hurt. And I may not understand fully why or what. But I'll tell you what, if the pain brings me back to Him again and again, it's working. It's doing what it's supposed to. Sanctification is personal. Suffering is part of the process. 
Now you might say, okay, I get it, sanctification. But why does God heal one person of cancer and let another person die? Hey, we've had that happen in this fellowship. We've had a number of you healed of cancer. And we've had some who have not been healed. Why? Third thing to note. Salvation is primary. It is His foremost concern. Extending our life here on earth, it may be what we think we need, what we think we want, but as far as the Lord is concerned, the far greater deal is salvation. It's coming home. It's being with Him. He's done us a favor. (laughs) We don't see it that way in our flesh. But Isaiah 57 verses 1 and 2 says, The righteous man perishes, and no one takes it to heart or, or, or gets it. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. For us, the highest goal is life. And it should be. Eternal life. That's where we're headed on this road. Did you know that? That, That's the end game here. That is what we're all talking about looking forward to. Is eternal life. And so where there's suffering, where there is death as a result of suffering, where there is not a healing, and we pray for a healing and it doesn't happen, and the person is taken, we have to recognize that God considers salvation a greater gift. A more beautiful thing. More on that in a bit. Final thing to note, really, in this whole story of Jesus at the pool of Bethesda is while sanctification is personal and suffering is part of the process and salvation is primary, we need to know the Savior is the point. It was all about Jesus. More than the man getting his legs on that day, more than the miracle of healing, was the the illumination of who Jesus is. That's why the story's in the Gospel of John. Don't be shocked. The reality is it wasn't about the guy at all. It was about Jesus. It was to give us more of a glimpse of who He is, of who God is through Him. It's one of the seven signs. And as we've talked about again and again, those signs are here not to have us ooh and ah at the person and how that person was healed, but to look at Jesus and to see Him. That's why the story's here. That's why ultimately the healing happened was so that we, 2,000 years later, could look at Jesus. Because ultimately our sanctification, our suffering, and even our salvation comes second to the glorification of Jesus Christ. He must be, He will be glorified. He's the focus. Not the signs, not the healed but the Savior. There's your mini-sermon. Now, we're going to get into the study. We'll pick it up where we left off in verse 18. First, I want to ask the Lord to bless the rest of this time. Father, would you pour out your Spirit now on us as we hear the words directly out of Jesus' mouth. Knowing, Lord, that the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is your Word, is spoke of you, is by your Spirit. But Lord, I pray that you would Would you pick us up tonight and carry us to that place that we might sit at Jesus' feet and hear Him and be moved and touched by His words. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 18. 
for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more so, or all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And again, that's the issue at hand. The divinity of Christ. The deity of the Son, Jesus, the Word made flesh. And I cannot emphasize that enough. I have had conversations with far too many Christians who do not understand the deity of Jesus. That all you have to do is walk through the Bible and the Bible proclaims Him as God. Not lesser than, but equal to. A fully equal part of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. All one, all equal. All sufficient to salvation. All deserving of glory and praise and honor. All of them. Not one above the other. And I know we've been over this. But it still shocks me when a follower of Jesus considers Jesus secondary to the Father. When a worshiper of Jesus steps back and says, Oh, but I can't pray to Jesus, can I? We'll get into that tonight. In fact, tonight is pure Christology. And you could come into these next several verses. If you have a red letter Bible, you notice the whole rest of John chapter 5 is red. This is all just Jesus speaking. There's no story here. There's no personal interest. Nobody gets healed. Now this is on the backside of this, this man who got healed. By the way, speaking of the backside of the man who got healed. Literally, did you know, this is, I just found this out this last week. In the first century, when there, there's a lot of artwork that came out early on, and what that artwork often showed was someone coming out of the waters of baptism with a pallet on their back. That they made a connection between the healing at Bethesda that Jesus did and the healing that happens to us that gives us our legs when we are born again. And so when someone, when there were pictures drawn of people baptized, they often, as a part of that, as a symbol, drew a pallet across the back of the person who had just gotten baptized, as though Jesus had just said, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. I just thought that was so cool. But from here on out, there is no story. It's just Jesus talking about Jesus. We've had the prophets talk about Jesus. We've had other teachers come along and talk about Jesus. Now you're going to hear Jesus talk about Jesus and it's just straight ahead truth unveiled. And it is powerful stuff. So buckle up. Verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, therefore because they were angry with Him, because they wanted to kill Him, because they saw, they knew, they recognized He was equaling Himself, making Himself equal to God. Therefore He answered them. And was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. You need to understand Jesus' teaching is slightly veiled here on purpose. It's still early enough in His ministry. It is not the time for His crucifixion. He still has things to do. He still has appointments to keep. And so he speaks in this veiled language. He speaks of the Son as though he's talking about another, though we know he's talking about himself. Now his enemies get that. They pick it up. But they can't do anything about it because he hasn't blatantly come out and said, I'm Messiah. 
You see, he will do that before the Sanhedrin on the night of his betrayal, and they will go berserk. But up until then, he doesn't come right out and say, at least to the Jewish leaders, I'm him. He veils it just slightly. It's kind of like, you know, it's the elephant in the room. Everybody knows who he's talking about. But he's still being careful. He's being wise here. But in answer to the Sabbath criticism that was given to him primary, or, uh, previously, remember he already said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Father's working, and I'm working. In other words, if the father's working, I'm working, and if I'm working, the father's working, because father and son are one. Hint, hint. Well, now he pushes it even further and begins to describe the father and the son in tandem. That the son can't do anything unless he sees the father doing this. Unless it's what the father's doing. Then the son can do it. Otherwise, the son can't. The son literally cannot work outside of the will of the father. And it's different than you and me. It's not that we choose to work in the will of God, which we should and do. It's not that Jesus chose to work in the will of God. It's that he had to work in the will of God because he was God. Right? So the Father's not going to do something that the Son doesn't do, and the Son's not going to do something that the Father is not going to do, because Father and Son are one. And that's what he's, he's getting at here. Verse 20, he says, For the Father loves the Son, and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Now get this, what Jesus is doing is He's equating the Father showing the Son... With the Father working in and through the Son, it's almost as if Jesus performs a miracle and is watching the Father do it. Even though He's doing it. That's the language that He's using, that the Father is showing the Son and will show the Son even greater things, even greater miracles, greater signs. The Father's going to show the Son through the Son as the Son does the work. Do you see how closely connected this is? But again, it's one working with the other, the two working together. Jesus works a miracle and turns around and says, did you see what the Father just did? Do you see what He's doing? Jesus walks on water. The Father just walked on water. Jesus gives someone hearing. The Father just gave someone hearing. No wonder when He healed the multitude over that three-day period in Matthew 15, no wonder they saw what He did and glorified the God of Israel. Because as far as Jesus was concerned, if someone's getting healed by His hand, it's the work of the Father. And the praise and the honor and the glory, Jesus would say, goes right up to the Father. What does He mean when He says, He's going to show Him greater works than these? Miracles? Yeah. But much more. Much more. In fact, Jesus now is going to go on to lay claim to two areas in which God alone has sovereignty. Don't miss this. What I just said, Jesus is going to now claim these two areas that belong to God alone. Only God can claim these. But Jesus will. Watch this. Life and judgment. Life and judgment belong only to the power of God. Listen to what Jesus talks about here. Number one, the power over life. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. 
Now wait a minute. Before he was talking about how he has to do the will of the Father. Now all of a sudden he takes a left turn and says, but the Son can give life to whoever he wishes. Why? Well, that's the will of the Father. Because if the Son is going to raise someone from the dead, guess what? He's working in the will of the Father. Because if the Son does it, the Father's doing it. And if the Father does it, the Son's doing it. But Jesus holds on to this. He grabs hold of it. He says, so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. Now, stop right there. In Jewish understanding, and rightly so, God alone can raise the dead. You can't claim to do that. Only God can do that. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides Me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from My hand. I'm the one who has the power of life and death, God declares. And there is no other. But now Jesus comes along and to these Jewish authorities, these Jewish rulers, He says, power of life? Right here, dude. It's mine. Just as the Father can raise from the dead, so the Son can give life to whoever He will. Now you might say, but but didn't other people raise the dead? Elijah did. Elisha raised the dead. In fact, Elisha's bones raised a dead guy. Cool story. True story. Read it sometime. Peter would raise the dead girl. Paul would raise Eutychus who fell out of the window because he preached so long. I would love to have that gift. <laughs> so others raise the dead. So, so what are you saying? Listen, all those others and everyone since who has ever raised the dead has done so by the exertion of the power and authority of God. Not in and of themselves. Jesus is claiming to do that. Of his own volition, of his own authority, of his own power, of his own self, the right and the authority to exercise power for resurrection, Jesus says, it's mine. Power of life. He'll explain this even further, but his words have stunned his listeners. So what does he do? He pushes another button. He has the power of life, and he also has the prerogative of judgment. The prerogative of judgment. Verse 22, he says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus just there, in one sentence, asserted a parallel authority with the one Abraham called the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18.25, Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? I know you're you're a righteous God. I know that you're the judge. You'll do what's fair. You'll do what's right. Right, Lord? Abraham says. And now along comes Jesus and He says, I have that same authority. Psalm 96.13 says, For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Now, if you were a Jew reading that, you'd say... Who's going to do that? Well, God will. Now we look back across the centuries and across history and we go, oh, He's coming to judge the earth. Well, that's talking about Jesus. We get that, but sometimes we get it all too quickly. Slow up and put on some Jewish sandals for just a moment and say, whoa, wait a minute. 
This is something only God can do. Isaiah 5.16 The Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the Holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. Only God is the judge. But Jesus says, and me. The Lord's final judgment... The ultimate judgment day, as sometimes we call it, resulting in resurrection or condemnation, was firmly embedded in Jewish faith. We're not the ones who came up with this whole idea. The Jewish people have believed this for centuries. Long before the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, they believed and understood the principle, in fact, both of these principles together, the power over life and resurrection, and the prerogative of judgment. These two went hand in hand. They were God's business. To raise up to life, or to judge and condemn to death. That's God's call. In two verses, gang, Jesus could not have been more provocative. We read this stuff and we go, oh, red letters, where's the next story? And miss what he's saying. That's why we're trying to slow up in our study through John. I think there's only one thing maybe that Jesus could have done that would be more upsetting, more provocative than the two things he just said. Claiming the power of life, claiming the prerogative of judgment. It's only if he, if he went on to do something like, oh, I don't know, claim the place of worship. Verse 23. So that, power of life, prerogative of judgment, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The place of worship. Blasphemy if you're not God. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 48, verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Perhaps the reason why the Seahawks lost the Super Bowl. I don't know. Trying to give you some peace and soothing on that issue. How could anyone but Yahweh alone receive worship after statements like that? And yet, even before Jesus says this, we have a hint that His glory, His honor, would be shared, as it were, in the Psalms. In the second Psalm, verse 11, which says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Lift up our hands. Lift up our hands. He's the giver of life. Wait a minute. That's to God, right? The Jewish person would say, absolutely. And to the Son. Do homage to the Son. That He not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. You know what He just said? Wrath, perish, power of life, prerogative of judgment. Belonging to the Son, and David told us it would be that way all the way back in the second psalm. It's in their own scriptures, in the Jewish scriptures. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Jesus could not claim this right, nor should He be followed unless He is indeed God. And here Jesus combines 
these three divine privileges, power over life, prerogative of judgment, and the place of worship, all together into one beautiful promise. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Now I told you before we got through John's Gospel, there would be no doubt as to who Jesus claimed to be. And there is no doubt. Now you may, someone may struggle with the idea of Jesus being actual God in flesh, God Himself equal to the Father. That may be difficult to to grasp or comprehend, and maybe you still struggle with that, but you have to at least accept the reality that Jesus claimed it. This is what Jesus said about Himself. And even His enemies understood that. That's why they killed Him. Because He was making Himself equal to God. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now Jesus begins to support His claims. And in fact, for the rest of the chapter, He will be giving witnesses. Testimonials to what He has just claimed to be. He's just claimed to be God. He's claimed to have the power that God has over life. To have the prerogative that God has over judgment. And to stand in the place of receiving worship just as God is worshipped. He's made those claims and now he gives testimony as to why he has the right to say that. Bit by bit, line by line, witness by witness, he calls these to the stand. And the very first one, and it's a big witness, is resurrection. Resurrection. But notice this, Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is. It's one of those kind of mysterious sayings of Jesus. An hour is coming and now is. Actually, it's not all that mysterious. He said it three times. Just three times in his recorded ministry. The first time was in John chapter 4, verse 23. We've already studied that. But an hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. Remember that meeting by the well. And He says to her, an hour is coming and now is. What does that mean? It means that Jesus in and of Himself was opening the door and ushering in intimate worship. That an hour is coming, he's saying this is the way it's going to be when people will no longer worship on this mountain or worship in Jerusalem, but worship will be of the heart, in spirit and in truth. That's the way it's going to be, but Jesus says, and now is, indicating that's the way it's going to be because of me. Because intimacy has just begun. It's going to happen, and it's already started. The second time, in John 16... Verse 32. 
Behold, he says, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own. It was the night of his betrayal. On the verge of the apostles being scattered as Jesus said they would be. But he said, and note that an hour is coming and has now come. Has now come means tonight you're going to be scattered. But an hour is coming, meaning Christians down through the ages are going to be scattered. What you're experiencing, fleeing for your lives tonight, that's going to be part and parcel of Christianity over the ages. That hour is coming and has now come. It's both now and then. And then the third time is right here in John 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The hour is coming, but the hour now is. It's right now. Why? Because right now, as Jesus is speaking, He's the interrupter of death. I love this about Jesus. He interrupted the funeral of the widow's son at Nain, Luke chapter 7. He interrupts the mourning over the synagogue official's daughter. Mark chapter 5, Matthew chapter 9, Luke chapter 8. And ultimately, he interrupts the burial of Lazarus, which interestingly is the seventh sign of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. So, the widow's son at Nain, the synagogue official's daughter, And Lazarus, those are the three resurrections Jesus performs during His ministry during that three to three and a half years. Get this, they were all at different stages of death. You've got the synagogue official's daughter who had literally just died and Jesus resurrects her. Well, maybe she wasn't all dead. You know, maybe she just flatlined and, you know, five, ten minutes, she, she came out of it. People do. Okay? Well, let's go to the widow's son at Nain. He's already in a coffin, bud. They're taking him out to his burial. Yeah, but I've heard of things, you know, sometimes resurrection, you could call it that, but the guy pops up, sits up in the middle of his funeral, whoa, everybody freaks out. So, you know, we could explain that away. (laughs) Lazarus was in the grave four days. They were worried about opening up the grave because of the stench. In every case, Jesus progressively shows His power over death. Now, you and I know His power was the same in all three cases because in all three cases, they were dead as doornails. But Jesus doesn't leave us guessing at all. So a time is coming, and now is, right now. Just check it out. Resurrection is going to validate what I'm telling you. And so he raises the widow's son. And so he raises Jairus' daughter. And so he raises Lazarus. And with every resurrection, it is becoming more and more clear that what Jesus claimed, that his power over life and power over judgment, is true. He is God. He must be. And then Jesus died. And things got really interesting. An hour is coming, and now is, in Jesus' death. Listen, Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. 
And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and they appeared to many. How's that for a powerful testimony? And I really think, yeah, I can't prove this, but I really think that Jesus in His own resurrection, it was so powerful that other dead people just couldn't stay dead. <laughs> you know, it was just a shockwave of godly divine power. Goes out over Jerusalem and people are like, whoa, wow, I feel pretty good. I got better. <laughs> shockwaves of resurrection. In Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And by the way, these were not the walking dead. They were the waking alive. These were not zombies wandering around Jerusalem. Oh, you know, these were, these were people walking down the street. I just love the story. I can't even imagine. I wish I could have been there. After his resurrection, you know, you're walking down the street and someone goes, Hey, Uncle Fred has, Uncle Fred's dead! And there he goes. What are you doing? I'm just going to go get a falafel. <laughs> a little hungry. <laughs> Resurrection testified what John would write later in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Life in the Son. Jesus says, I have life in me. Just as the Father has the power of life, so do I. It's, it's in me. And that's the key. In fact, getting a little deeper into this, when Jesus said, an hour is coming, and now is. F.F. Bruce calls this realized eschatology. I just thought that was cool. Realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times, or study of the last days. Realized last days. What does that mean? Jesus put it this way. I am the resurrection, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's part of the question of our faith. You got to believe it or you aren't really believing Him. Do you believe in His resurrection? If you believe in His, do you believe in yours? And do you understand that if you were to die tonight before Christ calls us home, that you go first when He does? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the dead in Christ will rise first. I guess that's fair. And we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds and so we shall meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. And that's what Jesus just described. If you die, you're going to live if you die in me. And if you're alive when I call you home, you'll never die. You're just going to go. Yes. Do you believe this? My friends, with three resurrection miracles behind Him and His own death, burial, and resurrection immediately before, the resurrection that is coming... Remember he said an hour is coming and now is. Now is is dealing with right then. Is coming, that resurrection is future and it is that of Revelation 20. Listen to this. Revelation 20 verse 13. A future resurrection. 
The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We've talked about this, but get this down. You need to be very clear about this. The Bible is, there are two deaths, two resurrections. Two deaths and two resurrections. The first death is physical death. The first death is what we are familiar with. And we see it all the time. Just physical death. The second death is spiritual, eternal death. It's an ongoing death. Two deaths. Physical, spiritual. But there are also two resurrections. And it's the opposite of the two deaths. What do you mean? Well, the first death is physical death. The second death is spiritual death. The first resurrection is spiritual resurrection. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you've already gone through it. Do you realize that? If you've been born again, you have already gone through the first resurrection. You're a part of the first resurrection. What if I die? You've already gone through the first resurrection. That is, even if you die, you will live. And if we're alive when He calls, we will just go on living. First resurrection is the resurrection of those who are spiritually born again by faith in Jesus Christ, and that is eternal. Those who are in the first resurrection. The second resurrection, you don't want to experience. Because the second resurrection... That's physical for a purpose. What do you mean? Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord told Daniel, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So putting it together, the first resurrection, that's for believers. Alive or dead, the first resurrection culminates in the rapture of the church. Because even the dead in Christ will rise, right? They rise first. So from the moment you have been born again all the way until you were either raised or raptured, that's the first resurrection. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to go. The second resurrection is for the non-believer who is resurrected to judgment. And again, who has the power, who has the prerogative of judgment? It's Jesus. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. What again is the second death? Revelation chapter 20 verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Two deaths, two resurrections. You want to be a part of the first death and the first resurrection. Okay, if you're part of any death at all. I really don't want to be a part of death, honestly. (laughs) But if I have to be, I need to be part of the first death, which is just physical death. My body just dying. And then in the first resurrection, up we go. But the second death is spiritual death. And the second resurrection is unto judgment. Jesus 
when He says a time is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's going out to that great resurrection, that ultimate resurrection where we are resurrected to life in Christ, resurrected eternally to be with Him. And again, the testimony of resurrection simply confirms what Jesus already said, that life and judgment belong to the Son.